Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Tina Gaznavi is here, and uh, joining us uh, is one of the greatest legal minds of this time. She is um, the only uh, law professor teaching law through an Africana lens. She actually created a whole curriculum, which she uh, is uh, teaching at American University, right? And uh, uh, let me welcome the great, the one and only Angie Marissa Porter is here. Hi. Oh, thank you, Karen. That's so kind, far too kind, but I receive it. <laughs> yeah, because it's true. Um, the and I and I feel like I feel our our mom whose son is at Stanford and her mourning and her loss. Um, because you know she's she in her spirit she's feeling like the opportunities, uh, that her son will benefit from the next generation will not. But I'm like, let's create mm. new ones. Let's create new ones. As someone who went to Howard Law, as did uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black person to sit on the Supreme Court. She, right. she makes a point, though, about today when they're looking at clerks, which is usually the pathway. Katanji Brown Jackson was a clerk uh, for Souter, I think. Um, went to Harvard, you know, was in that. Barack Obama, the first black president, was a Harvard Law Review editor. So was his wife, was was at Harvard and Harvard Law. So, so there is that. Uh, networking. Yeah. Is that going to be hampered? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think uh, Justice Jackson clerked for Breyer. She clerked for Breyer. Yeah. Breyer. Because yeah, she replaced right. Breyer. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, no, I'm so glad you raised that because I'll just say I stay mad. My heart rate didn't even go up because I'm already mad all the time. I, I'm like the Incredible Hulk in the Avengers. You know, he's. <laughs> I stay mad, but the reason I'm mad is not the crying, sighing, dying, oh, woe, woe are us, we can't go to Harvard anymore. It is that this is part of a longstanding concerted effort to attack our people. It's another battle in the attack. And that is the enraging part because this is not just about race conscious admissions in higher education. This is about colorblind constitutionalism. And we could talk about what that means, but this is a win for the larger strategy of the attack, the assault on black people that has been longstanding since the 14th amendment was passed. Mm. And it flows to other non-white People. So this is a tragedy of epic proportion when it comes to the battle that we're fighting. But I agree with you, Karen. Like I went to the HBCU. Now is the time for us to support the institutions that have supported us all along. And we used to get upset when people would call Howard the Black Harvard. I mean, some people get off on that, but not never me and <laughs> never many because we are not trying to emulate Harvard. Again, that's not everybody. Some people, some people fancy that as a legitimate goal. But Howard, Hampton, other HBCUs, NCCU, FAMU, the, the, uh, the HBCUs that have law schools, we are doing our own thing and we are innovators and we're thinking on a wavelength that is 
honoring our experience as African people in this country who have had to push up against the law from its inception in the United States from the time it was a collection of colonies. So yeah, that prospect that there will be now more people seriously interested in the HBCU and in the HBCU grad schools and professional schools. I mean, that that's what we need to, to be doing anyway. But this is an assault on our people telling us you can't go here and trying to drag us back. I think Mike Pence said something like this is a, a great step back toward an America where you're not judged by the race, your, your race, but the content of your character. The man said a great step back. And by that, he meant exactly what it sounds like he meant. So, um, so this back. is part of that. Yeah. Take us to school, um, Angie Marissa Porter, 14th Amendment. For, for those of us who aren't familiar with it, when did it come into play? What did it say? And then how is this yet another assault on it? Mm-hmm. So we have to put ourselves back in the, the mindset of the Civil War and what happened after the Civil War. Uh, let's just take for our scenario, Black people are being terrorized in the South, okay? The Southern states are not yet back in the Union. They have to do certain things to get back, but they have sent federal troops to the South to help protect Black people at this point. Uh, the Civil War Congress and the Reconstruction Congress are furiously passing statutes to make sure we can get back to a place where they can enforce um, laws against the terrorism, essentially. And so they passed civil rights acts to make sure that, A, the Klan can be prosecuted, for example, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, they passed a series of laws. And at one point they think, oh, the president is gonna veto this. So we need to amend the constitution. The 14th amendment is passed in 1868. So that amendment has several clauses. One of them is the equal protection clause, basically saying everybody is um, entitled to equal protection under the law. In that moment, they are specifically thinking about black people making sure that Black people are protected in the South, especially. That's not in the text of the amendment, but of course, all amendments are drafted broadly so that you don't need to you know, include all the specifics in there and they can expand and be applicable across the eras. So that's the 14th Amendment. We then get to segregated society. Plessy versus Ferguson is the famous case in 1896, where separate but equal is enshrined in law. So Jim Crow is the prevailing way of life for a long time. We get up to the 1950s, Brown versus Board of Education comes out, and that overrules Plessy. Now, in Plessy, one of the justices dissented. This is Justice Harlan. And when you dissent, that means you disagree with the majority opinion. So most people agree that Plessy, which said separate but equal is okay, was one of the worst opinions that any Supreme Court issued in the history of the country. So if you were dissenting, that means you were good. So Justice Harlan is dissenting. 
know, he's a white guy back then. So he's thinking in the period of his time and he's like, you know, the constitution is colorblind. That's part of his descent. The constitution is colorblind. Therefore, separate but equal shouldn't be the law. Well, Justice Thomas today and all the conservative justices, they like to hang their hat on Justice Harlan saying the constitution is colorblind. Now that man was just trying to do the right thing back then. And suddenly a whole constitutional movement is based on that, but it's disingenuous. They like to hide behind Plessy, but what they're essentially saying is you shouldn't be able to consider race for anything, not even to help counteract racism. But that doesn't make any sense. Even a child could sit and tell you that doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense. Um, but it's there's been this concerted effort since Brown to dismantle this notion that you can help people by considering race. You can create benefits to you know remedy past discrimination. Now, the reason I'm like Incredible Hulk today is because this has been a longstanding effort and there's no surprise today. We lost in the 70s with the Baki case, University uh, Regents of the University of California versus Baki. That was 1978. That. Yeah. yeah. In Baki, which was not a majority decision, it gets kind of complicated, but there were six opinions issued in that decision, which is a totally normal thing, but it basically means that decision doesn't have a lot of weight. In that decision, Justice Powell said, hey, you can't have quotas in university admissions based on race, but also they, the interest that you can pursue with race conscious admissions is diversity. It is not remedying past discrimination. So that was the big loss. Slips under everybody's nose because this is all a big puzzle piece, a big puzzle, and these are just single pieces. But at that point, the court essentially made it illegal for you to do things under the 14th Amendment in order to remedy past discrimination, mm. unless it was like your specific college, you can prove that they discriminated. But nobody... We know how discrimination works. There, you can never prove <laughs> with a yeah. specific institution. And what about new institutions that just came into being that are racist? So in that moment, this country decided it was standing in opposition to combating racism, essentially, um, or even talking about the residual effects of enslavement in this country. And so they went around this diversity thing. Bring it up to 2003, Grutter versus Bollinger, Mich uh, Michigan case. Justice O'Connor writes the opinion. And you know, she's considered like semi-liberal justice, but a lot of we got we have a lot of critiques for her in that opinion. In that case, they're again thinking about race conscious admissions. She says, okay, diversity, you can pursue that the benefits that flow from diversity. 
Okay, so race conscious admissions. We can promote diversity. So all the DEI stuff that we know about these days, it sort of evolves from this moment of diversity is legitimate, institutions can pursue it. But she put a ticking time bomb in that opinion. And she said, you know, in 25 years, these measures should not be necessary. We should be in a better place 25 years from now. That's 2003. So 25 years from then is 2028. Plenty so of time. Can, <laughs> plenty of time. We can turn this around. We can turn this around. We got five right. years. After, after hundreds of years, you know, right. plenty of time. Um, that was arbitrary. It was based on nothing. From the moment she wrote that, people were criticizing it. And today the court said, hey, it's, yo, it's been it's 20 time. years. Yeah. <laughs> All right, it's time. So, we had 20, so we're good. <laughs> Angie Marissa Porter, uh, American U professor, um, teaches law through an Africana lens. What, what's the, the gain? What, what is, what's the game? You said it's a big puzzle. When all of the pieces are in place, what do we expect to happen? And then how do we combat it? Well, I'll say in the immediate future, there is this legal result that happened today. And then there's the practical result. Past is prelude. When Gruder came out, everybody... And when I say everybody, I don't I don't mean higher education only. I mean hiring committees, recruiting committees in the private sector. Everybody rallied around Harvard's admissions model as the model, the gold standard for how you evaluate people essentially. So if you're listening and you've ever sat on a hiring committee, you probably know that. You probably feel that. There's a, an industry standard to hiring and not being biased and promoting diversity. That really came from that moment. So when folks talk about this decision today impacting culture and society, that's what they mean. They're talking about the practical effect. So this decision, yes, legally applies to higher education institutions, public and private, by the way higher ed institutions. But as a practical matter, it applies to every hiring committee you're going to see because they're reading this right now. And folk aren't up there drawing a Venn diagram or trying to, you know, say, oh, does this apply to us? No, they're saying, hey, the Supreme Court said you can't consider race. We don't want a lawsuit. So we're not going to consider race. So what that means is it's a win for the conservatives. It's a win for folks on the on the right because they are trying to return to the era before the civil before Reconstruction. They're trying to make America great again. So they're trying to go back to pre-Reconstruction, meaning they're trying to go back to a society, like Mike Pence said, that doesn't even think about race. And by that they mean doesn't think about <laughs> black people. <laughs> they because yeah, they but, think but, about but, race. Angie, four million people are just four million people have just been freed from enslavement for several hundred years. This ain't that. No. This is a whole different they gon they about to find out. They're in the find out <laughs> portion. I'm, I'm you just made me rub my hands together. Seeing a, a thoughts thoughts and prayers. 
Yeah, I guess uh, I got a question and always thoughts of first. But uh, how one, how is there a mechanism for the Supreme Court to look at reality like actual history? I know it sounds funny, but it's like they did that in Brown. They were like, well, obviously there's a clear problem here. And then they kind of found the pathway for it. Right. And you would call that, you know, the Constitution being a living document and all that stuff. But uh, yeah. but is there another mechanism legislatively or whatever that, that can maybe codify an acknowledgement that can then be based to help close some of these gaps or or these 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 injustices that have happened right can we have something that says like a declaration that says redlining was real or that the homestead act created these this many multi multi millionaire generationally wealthy yeah. people and because of this we need this piece of legislation yeah so no yeah i sort knew of. you were gonna say i was like <laughs> this is gonna sort be a hard no the answer is no. And, and okay, there is a mechanism. All right, Sniz. Thank you, Sniz. <laughs> there is a mechanism, and that mechanism failed. So, mm. with the judiciary, yeah, they are a check and balance on the other branches of government. In this situation, we're looking at purely the constitution, not laws. So not statutes passed by legislatures. So this is firmly in the realm of the court. Now the mechanism to get facts in front of the court is the briefing process for these cases and oral argument. In this case, many organizations wrote briefs. The Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, which has been working on this. The NAACP been there since this became a topic in legal jurisprudence. Um, many organizations, Michigan, Michigan, which was the school at the center of Grutter. And Michigan, after Grutter, passed a law banning affirmative action in Michigan. Michigan was like, don't do this because in Michigan we did this. And our diversity went off a cliff. Minority enrollment dropped precipitously. This will happen. They wrote a brief. These briefs contain all kinds of statistics, all kinds of scientific data, because, you know, our, this society and social structure loves science. <laughs> Court didn't care. Court didn't care. So what you've just revealed, Sina, is how subjective all of this legal reasoning is. Yeah. You have the test, you have the logic, and then once you get to the bottom, you know, this is like algebra. Once you plug in for X, you're just plugging in stuff you feel. It yeah. always gets to this point, like if you read a legal opinion, it always starts very rote, very analytical, and at the end, you plug in for X, you get to this point where people are just injecting their viewpoints. So it's like logic is masking people's feelings. Um, so yeah, we can't, we can't really inject that reality. And just like Sotomayor and Jackson wrote in their dissents, they both wrote dissents today. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday 
at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.